always fighting for the best work is also so important and integral in what you're doing. Be able to judge it and be able to foster it and, and you know, fan the flames on the, on the ideas that are in the mix that are worthy of further consideration is, is so much of what we have to do. Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy, and welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Now, if you're enjoying the Managing Marketing podcast, please either like, review or share this episode to help spread the words and wisdoms from our guests each week. When we hear the industry talk about in-house agencies, some may think about creative production and even media. But what happens when an organisation takes creative strategy and design leadership in-house? What are the implications and opportunities for the marketing team, the wider organisation and their existing agencies? My guests today are leading creative strategy and design inside a major Australian beverage company, and are well-placed and qualified to discuss the benefits of having creative strategy and design inside. Please welcome to Managing Marketing Podcast, Creative Strategy Lead at Lion, Tom Donald. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, mate. And Head of Design at Lion, Mick Boston. Welcome, Mick. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. It's a great opportunity from my perspective because... Often, you know, this idea of in-house agency really is just a very small part of the overall advertising offering. Whereas, you know, I see both of you representing the, the almost the core of the value proposition that agencies offer and taking that inside. It's almost like the beating heart of creative advertising now being transplanted into organisations. How do you feel about that perspective of what you're doing, Tom? Um, I think, look, to use your metaphor of the beating heart, I don't think you're taking the whole heart of what a really amazing design firm or a really amazing creative advertising agency offer. I do think we're taking elements of it. So when you say you take the whole heart of it in-house, I think if I was an advertising agency or a design firm, that would fill me with fear because it's like, well, then what's our value add, right? (laughs) They're Um, bloodless. (laughs) But but the reality is when you work with first-tier, you know, agencies and design firms, and we've got a couple on the roster from Thinkerbell through to Weave and various others, the value that they bring is something that's very hard to bring in-house. So um, uh, so I, I, I think... As we, you know, I think one of the jobs we have is to ensure that we are like a bridge or a translation service to steal some of Vic's language between brand marketing and marketing managing and getting the best work out of creatives. So we do bring a bit of the magic in house, but it's not to the detriment or robbing anything from those creative partners. I think mm-hmm. we actually help them unlock. No, it's, a, it's a fair point mm-hmm. because you're still working with these external mm-hmm. agencies where that skill exists. But yeah, Mick, you were actually the one you did mention earlier that uh, before we started yes. talking about this role of translation. Yes, it's kind of the gag I make first time people meet me in line, especially um, is that you know I'm there for translation services, and I think especially in the world of you know branding and design and even to advertising in that respect, there's a lot of vernacular that doesn't make any sense whatsoever to a designer or a creative or 
or vice versa with a marketer. So, like, for instance, in my arrival at Lion, it was like the jargon-heavy acronym world was head-spinning. It's like had to basically walk around with a thesaurus trying to unpick everything and understand what everything was. But then being able to translate that when you're doing a brief for, mm. you know, one of our brands for a redesign or a, a campaign, you've kind of got to unpack it all and make sense to those teams on the other side. But then do it the other way around. So some of the language a designer may use, especially when they're speaking about the finessing a, a certain level of turning on a certain typeface, <laughs> if we're getting really crafty, yeah, you know, it's to go straight over the heads or the eyes glaze over, but being able to translate the importance and what those aspects add to the work mm. to a marketer so they appreciate it just as much as the team on the other side do. It's kind of what you do. It's it kind is, of 50% yeah. of the job really, yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? Because marketing is part of communications and yet, you know, organisations do often build their own language mm. that only really exists within the organisation. Mm-hmm. And agencies, to your point, and designers have their language. You know, I like I like that idea of part of this is translation. Mm. But is it also deeper than that, obviously, because it's then going beyond allowing them to or facilitating communication to really get an appreciation of the value that's being created here? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good way of unpacking it. I think being able to, yes, cross-communicate across the two teams is super important, but a lot of what Tom and I have to do as well is ensure that the work is the best it possibly can be. And because our backgrounds come from outside of marketing groups and, and businesses, you know what it takes mm. to create great work or what a good idea looks like and those sort of things. So always fighting for the best work is also so important and integral in what you do and be able to judge it and be able to foster it and, and you know, fan the flames on the, on the ideas that are in the mix that are worthy of further consideration is, is so much of what we have to do. Mm. And I think when we're at our best, we are 50% of the time we're internal champions for our agencies and design firm partners actually helping protect stuff. And I think sometimes when we're at our best, the other 50% is helping our brand and marketing managers get what they actually need. Right. right? So it, it, it is a dance. Yeah, I was going to say, Tom, because, you know, part of what Mick said could be interpreted by people that you've taken over the role of things like creative directors mm. and, and, you know, design leads externally who have a role in their own organisations mm. in an agency of making sure they produce the best product. But you're probably better situated because you are closer to marketing and the organisation and have an appreciation for the, those external parties that you're working with, the agencies. I think so, uh, uh, partly just because we were around the brand managers and the marketing managers all day. So our ability to have conversations and take them on journeys and see, take them through, it just the amount of face-to-face time is so much more than a creative director or a design lead is going to get that, uh, yeah, when we're tag-teaming on stuff that we know is right, the ability to play a bit of an internal creative director role, while that's not formally our, in our job description, we are on the hook for the quality of the creative. Mm. And with an eye to that, it is taking people on, a, on internally at line on a journey from how to go from good to better and better and better and better. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tag team, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think the other thing is identifying that talent in-house as well that get it and mm-hmm. helping them 
pull the things that they get, their sense of taste or their ability to identify great work or ask for what they need or understand what their brand needs and help them get those ideas across to the agency and support their vision as well, not just the other way around. So it's definitely a two-way street. Definitely. Trinity P3. So part of that's helping, you know, because a lot of people would be sitting there going, well, wouldn't marketers just know how to do that? You know, isn't that part of their job is to brief agencies and judge the work and give feedback? Mm. But in actual fact, there can be significant obstacles in mm-hmm. being able to articulate the nuance of strategy or mm. the nuance of design to just get that incremental improvement. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm stealing Anuba's language, Anuba Sahastrabudi, who's now the Chief Growth Officer at Align and was the CMO, and she is the one who set up the connections team within it. But, you know, so stealing from her and from other people who've worked with this model is that the modern brand or marketing manager, there's just simply too much for them to have to be expert at, to also be experts at briefing creative agencies, working with them and getting the best work. So you're right, in theory, great brand managers should be able to do all that, and there are probably look globally there are going to be some that can right but they're a rare unicorn um and so uh, this function is acknowledging that most brand managers who have to run everything from customer accounts to relationships to p&ls to everything Mm. and so it's just acknowledging that that can't all be done and so we're here to help that's part of the problem, isn't it, is just sheer t- lack of time Absolutely. to actually be able to, you know, build a perspective or build a, uh, you know, a, the feedback that you need to give mm. to actually get the best response from your agencies. Yeah, and as we all know, I mean, there's less and less and less time, as to be blunt, as capitalism gets faster and faster and faster enabled through technology and stuff, there is just simply not enough hours in the day, I think, to get that job done right, which is what people like Coke and Mars acknowledged because they're the innovators of this connections model, if you like, to say the the quality of everything in the marketing mix is going down because these people are trying to do everything and they can't. And so break it up and give them the support they're needed. Because it's interesting, the connections model, because it does look at all of the possible channels Mm. and the way that, consumers and customers interact with both of us, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I mean, Mick and I partner with uh, Claire Savano, who's media. We uh, partner with Sophie Breheny, who's earned, focused. We've got connections planners in the connections team. We've got producers. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's very much bringing a lot of those skills in-house. And that's not like... Claire doesn't tell you in what to do, but just like she's providing, Mick is talking about providing translation services, she's providing those translation services so that we get what we need on time and on budget, et cetera, et cetera. So as this creative strategy lead, Mm -hmm. what would you, you know, if you were pinned to the wall and someone said, what is it that you're responsible for? I think it'd be really worthwhile, you know, giving a better sort of definition of that because, you know, I think people use words like strategy <laughs> and are not really sure what that means. Yeah, totally. The Particularly irony. creative strategy because yeah, it's yeah. like, well, what does that mean? No. Is that a strategy that's creative <laughs> or a strategy for a creative response or both? Yeah, look, it's a job title that exists that I would never, I'm one of these people who hates the word strategy. It's used far too much. One of my favourite things is an essay from 30 years ago by John Kay from the 
Financial Times or The Economist, it should be a synonym for expensive. Uh, it's a strategic acquisition, right? Um, but um, look, the creative strategist role within the connections model is really twofold. And the way we've kind of tried to delineate it within the line one is the creative strategist is a, par- is a partner with the brand teams to be very responsible for brand strategy. We don't outsource what is the strategy that underpins any of the individual brands to agencies. You've got to own that and live and breathe that in-house. Right. So there was a pulling back of like, you know, Weave or Thinkabell or whoever. You're not responsible for brand strategy. That's now done in-house. So that's a core part of the role. Now, once those brand strategies are set, which we've kind of cleaned them up, and set most of them over the last almost two years. And that that's, was a huge amount of work because for a variety of reasons they were in various different states from really strong to really weak. The, the next thing is to be that bridge, is to partner with the agencies and your brand managers and your marketing managers just to get the best work possible. So I'd say it's a hybrid role where you're partly a classic brand strategist and then there is this new role which I've had to learn my way into and look, I started off very briefly as an art director, so I, I feel like I have some ability to, to comment on creative. But the past twenty years, I've really just been pure strategy. But there is a little bit of an internal creative director role, yeah. Which is why I lean on mix so much, particularly for the visual perspective. I can look at it from, you know, is this comms going to work the way advertising works? People, you know, is it does it, you know, is it going to be quick? Is it going to blink? What it's going to be? But but it's that. So it's a bit strategy, a bit creative. No, because I, you know, uh, Tom, um, when people say to me things like, oh, listen, there's an element of magic in creativity, I say, absolutely. It's that divine moment Mm. of inspiration where someone takes all of that thinking and and a distillation of what a brand represents Mm. and actually turns it into an idea Mm. that Mm. is often surprising, inspirational, or amazing, but at the same time, seems completely logical, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. if the strategy was done well, almost the idea in hindsight looks like, oh, well, that's so simple, so simple and yeah. so obvious. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still re- relying on our agency partners for those moments of magic. Yeah. We're not trying to steal that from them. No, not at all. At all. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. And, which is why, you know, you have an external partner hmm. to do that because often corporate cultures can be counter to that moment of magic. Almost always. Yeah. Which is why you need a connections team to fight mm-hmm. for it, yeah. to be blind. I'm Trinity P3. Now, yeah. I just want to flip over yep. to Mick to, you know, design because, mm. you know, a lot of people have very old-fashioned mm-hmm. definitions of design, mm. you know. It was the pretty pictures and the setting the typeface and, and kerning and letting yes. and, and selecting, yeah, yeah. you know, but which, you know, it, but design's come a long way. And, and in fact, I read articles all the time where they're talking about design in customer experience, mm. which doesn't seem to have anything to do with font choice. Yes. What, what, how would you define your role as, you know, what are the things that you are touching and, and influencing um, yeah, I think uh, it, it's a pretty broad church design, I think, um, to steal a phrase from the Liberal Party. Um, the, <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> you got in first. The, um, the, uh, 
it kind of covers everything that, you know, needs to live in the real world in some respects. And even uh, these days it's, it's living in the virtual world too. But, um, and I think that's why the language of design sort of been really grabbed onto with things like customer experience and experience mapping and, you know, design thinking. And I heard design listening used the other day. Um, I'm a big fan of design doing, um, but it's, it's definitely. Well, that's where the rubber hits the road, road, supposedly. Yeah. But for me, it's like, it's the point of contact between what a business is trying to do or an entity is trying to do and, and to create a response or an emotion in a consumer at the basis level. And I think that's where design lives and breathes, like even to the point of considering communications as a subset of mm. design. You know, like mm. with crafting something to get a reaction or a response is where it lives. It's very esoteric. But basically it does mean my remit is very much around ensuring that these massive brands that we're in charge of being allowed to play with have a moment with consumers out there that is positive and exciting and interesting and fits their needs and, and carries on those legacies or gets them excited about something new. So for me it's very much about how much emotional connection does what we do at Lion, you know, make with consumers to get them excited about, you know, buying a six-pack or a case or, you know, talking to their friends, have you tried this or have you seen that? Or So that's kind of it sounds very broad but it's kind of what we have to do mm. well the, the words that jumped out were this idea of emotion mm. right because a lot of people talk about advertising creating emotion but mm. i think it also comes down to the difference between brand and branding mm-hmm. um and and the ability you know when you see something and you don't even see the logo type Mm. but you immediately associate it with a brand yes, because there are elements that just resonate as so familiar mm. that make you think of that brand. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah. To me, that's that's an example of getting design mm. like at, at the zenith, you know, of yeah, being yeah. able to create a emotional response or even a, a you know, a thought mm. connection. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, I think Mark Ritson uses the word brand codes for that sort of stuff, and it sort of covers everything from oh, it's color and fonts, but it's also what emotion are you tying to that brand? Like, what memory have you mm. created? Like, mm. they make up that world of the codes that are owned that a brand can try and own, so to speak. Mm. So, for us, for our brands, like we've got ones that have got these long-lasting codes. So whether it's you know, I feel like a two E's, yeah. that jingle that anyone of my vintage will remember wholeheartedly and anyone, you know, maybe slightly younger. Um, those things are the pieces that instantly create memory. I think the tough thing these days is trying to do that with new brands. Mm-hmm. So what are the new codes? How do I create familiarity now? And I think that's where we are being forced to be a bit more disruptive, a little louder, a little crazier. And I think that's where contemporary design is really trying to you know, inject itself into the everyday. Like some people have, you know, you could argue that the Facebooks of the world have turned that up to 11 with, you know, uh, using emotion as a weapon to get you to keep scrolling. <laughs> that's still design. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's that's the bad way of doing things. But the good yeah. way could be like, you know, making things bolder and brighter and more exciting and, and yeah. a bit more fun. Well, it's interesting brand codes, you know, because, it, it, yes, you're right, it's something Mark Ritson talks about all the time. Mm. But, you know, 
I, you don't hear that conversation very much in marketing departments or in agencies unless someone brings it up. It's almost like sometimes brand codes are discovered after they were created rather than necessarily designed in the first place. That's my interpretation. No, 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 that's a very and I'm happy, no, I'm no, happy no, for no. you to, yeah. to challenge me on that. But, you know, I, I often feel like some of the best brands, you know, like Capri Purple. Remember mm. they tried to enforce the trade or tried to trademark. Yes. The Cadbury Dairy Milk Purple, for instance. Mm. Yeah. Now they could get away, you know, I think they did for the scrolling script, yeah. Yeah. And Coca-Cola's done it, you know. So but it's almost like these days people because of the internet, because of IP having suddenly some sort of commercial value, mm. people are very quick to go out and trademark things. But they're not necessarily brand codes just because you have a trademark. Mm, they become a brand code after the con- your customers start yeah. associating emotions with those yeah, codes. T- totally. I think yeah. that's what the power of communications in that respect, like the advertising groups that we're fortunate enough to work with. Like if we are bringing something new to the table, how important it is to have a creative partner in agencies that can turn message into code really quick. So, yeah. for instance, we've got a wonderful Japanese beverage that's launched end of last year that we're trying to create a tagline with and bury it into and Mm. create a code on that where you start, where you need to draw from in those codes and where Thinkerbell very cleverly got to with the tagline was uh, what are the codes of Australian understanding of Japanese language or Mm. what's the experience of Japan? So they came up with the the really fun non sequitur line, hello, yes, to refer to the name of the <laughs> product, which is completely unpronounceable. Yeah. Um, but you just know it's kind of like, oh, that's that wacky Japanese drink. I'll give mm. it a crack. So yeah. now it's a case of like repetition mm. to bed it in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think also, I mean, I'm just trying to link codes to sort of this notion of in-housing. The, you're right that most codes on the big brands became codes over time and they may not have initially been thought about as, 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 as something, though I have a feeling that people in sort of the, the early 1900s through to about the 50s were better at marketing <laughs> and branding than people were sort of from the 60s through to about 15 years ago. The impact of the Byron Sharps and the Ritzons and the understanding of how all this stuff actually works on this industry. I mean, I've been in this game for, what, 25, 26 years, mix a little younger than me, but I can, I can watch the shift in clients and agencies as they've really grokked all that stuff. And you you do see the huge shift. But to tie it back to in-housing, I think one of the value of having a team of internal experts who actually fully understand what a distinctive brand asset is, what distinctive brand asset, what it is, what it isn't, which ones are for which brands in our portfolio, which are negotiable, which are non-negotiable, where and how do they turn up, and then being able to work with the agencies because agencies love them, right, but they always want to do new stuff. Yeah. Right? It's a very rare agency that goes, I'm going to pick up purple and I'm going to pick up gold and I'm just going to run that for the next five years and clip the ticket. But you need that discipline in-house uh, to to do that, and uh, so but look, both sides of the fence are getting better. And think about what they sponsor Ehrenberg Bass anyway. So they're an agency that's embraced it. But there is a utility to making sure that you've got that discipline in house, because depending on your agency village or who you're partnered with, it might be harder to police. Mm. If you like, not police. Our job's not being cops. Well, but that that <laughs> picks up on um, 
what Mick said about uh, it feels like a tui. You know, yeah. yeah, feel like a tui mm. because where you have a brand code that's been established, knowing when to go back mm. and reinstate it or refresh it or, mm. or you know. And, in fact, with one of your com- um, competitors, you know, uh, Victoria Bitter, mm-hmm. they went off the track and there's quite a good case study, mm. I think it was in Unmade, um, where they went back and then worked out how to take that code of a hard-earned thirst mm-hmm. and reinterpret it around a skill set mm. is a really interesting way of revisiting the codes and the value that those codes have. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. The, um, sorry, Mick, you go. No, I, just, I think it's that thing of, um, you know, classic beers in Australian history, that, especially the ones that have got such a strong mnemonic that builds so much memory, you know, where brands in the past sort of lost their ways when they've gone like, oh, I've got to modernise for a younger <laughs> audience and then changed everything, but instead doing exactly what you just described, which is like, no, 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 just reframe it slightly for something that's a little bit more contemporary and relevant. So that jingle from VB, right, like you can you can hear it right now. Millions of dollars in media. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon there are more great brands that have been ruined we need to change this to appeal to young people. Yes. I'm telling you, man, it's just, and, and how many brands have gone back? Like Cadbury went back to Glass and a Half. VB went back to Hard on Thirst. I used to have like six of these examples in my head. So many brands have gone like, oh, we just had 10, 15 years in the wilderness because we had to change everything to appeal to the youth. So when well, they should have been doing what Mick is talking about, refresh, don't redo, can, well, refresh yeah, it yeah. Ref- through Not design, through comms. It's literally just about, you, know, yeah. like, you, you may have to contemporise some elements of your brand, sure. like give it a little tidy up. Yeah. But the best rebrands in the world are the ones where everyone goes, you didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Trinity P3. What was it, two years ago, three years ago, we saw all of those luxury prestige brands mm. that had beautiful logo types yeah. with mm. glorious, you know, uh, serifs and things like that, and they all suddenly ended up as these all clunky sand serifs yeah. and they all look the same and now they're all going back, back. again because yeah. it was Burberry's like back. some design theory of cleanliness for the online world. Yes, it was. Yes. I just ate, ate them all up, yeah. spat them out, in a generic form, you know, part mm. of the role I guess you guys are doing Stopping is, that. is really sitting between mm. the desire of agencies and designers to do something new that they can own mm. and marketers wanting to change things because they're bored with it. Mm. Yeah. And you guys in many ways are the voice of the consumer that goes, no, we actually love that. Yeah. I think it's that thing like... Um, Everyone seems to think nostalgia is a trend, but it's a trend that never goes away, right? Like there's always a new generation who wants to reclaim something that comes from their grandparents' time or their older siblings' time. Um, I remember a talk I was involved with ages ago, but um, there's an idea of being able to predict the future. And the way you predict the future is look back to the generation before you, what, was it, what were they looking at? when they were coming of age mm-hmm. and that'll be important for this generation. So, <laughs> so in that respect, it's like mm-hmm. contemporize refreshes and, and rebranding is about looking at all the things that were important and powerful about that brand. Yeah. Yes. Give them a, a freshen up. So that it looks a bit better and a bit more palatable to a new audience, mm-hmm. 
but you've got to hang on to all those codes that made it great in the first place because there's a generation gagging to own it again. So mm. they want their turn. And to build on that too, I mean, one of the things I think about these roles is you need one of the things that Mick is excellent with is he's, he is a business-minded creative and I'm also a business-minded strategist. And why I'm bringing that up is part of what happened with those logos that you're talking about when they all went sans serif was, and I say this having worked in and around both full-time but also freelancing with a lot of design firms, you have a lot of designers who actually know nothing about branding and how it actually works, right? Mm. They don't know about codes. All they know is what looks cool now, right? (laughs) So they get given the Balenciaga brief and they go, well, sans serifs are in now and they're going to make sans serifs, right? And it all goes and changes. And um, so all I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up is if you've got people from in your, in your audience who are client-side or procurement-side and they're thinking about, oh, would, would we ever bring connections in-house or try and do that sort of a model, from a, from a HR perspective or from a personnel perspective, one of the things you've got to look for is hybrids. Mix a hybrid. I'm a hybrid. Mm. Unfortunately, it makes the hiring process a little harder because we're not common. Mm. Uh, well, you don't fit neatly into no, a pigeon. No, we don't. No, we don't. But you, but you need them. people who are interested in absolutely everything. It's <laughs> yeah. tied down. So. <laughs> but the trouble is otherwise you'll end up with a head of design who actually doesn't know how branding and marketing work and what memory structures are and what distinctive brand assets are and all that stuff and you'll end up fucking changing, pardon my language, you'll end up changing everything and you'll be in a big mess. So it's interesting on that, you know, both of you have eclectic, typically eclectic Mm, mm. careers jumping around from, you know, agency side, design studio, client side, side, you know. It's it's almost like, you know, people say creativity comes from curiosity. Mm. It's almost like your career is based on being curious and, and jumping to opportunities that are, you know, interesting and and maybe a bit challenging i I think so for me definitely my whole career is i mean uh, has been jumping around doing weird little things but then i've come to realize uh you know that uh in the long run what, what i thought was kind of verging on mental instability turns out to have been a bit of a superpower because once you've been all over the place you can connect dots in ways that other people can't yeah no, I think that's that's very fair, like the curiosity thing. I think the other aspect is like I'm a terrible people pleaser and so when someone says, do you want to crack at this? I'm like, of course, yes. I <laughs> well, I'm not sure if that's a super strength or a weakness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, suddenly all your colleagues are going, oh, right, we just have to yeah. ask Nick to do something. I think I'm just fortunate that they're asking me to do things that are actually very interesting at the yeah. time. So. Yes, I do remember like the agencies that I stayed at a long time at. There was you'd have these you know itchy feet moments, and then suddenly the whole agency would shift tack and be like, "Oh, we've just won a car client, or we've just mm. you know entered this tech business." And you kind of go, "Oh, that's cool! I'll have a crack at that." Mm. So you learn so much so fast. So. Mm. It is interesting because traditionally, yeah, you know, and in the past, big corporate organisations were not necessarily the place that would be the natural home of, you know, that creativity, that curiosity, Mm. that eclectic view of the world. But I think, you know, first of all, we had this sort of innovation trend. You know, every big organisation had a innovations officer. But, you know, I think perhaps this connections Mm. into marketing or for marketing Mm. is a way of opening that up. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Look, there... 
I'm not sure corporates still are really great places for creativity. There's a definitely a tension within, I'm not airing any dirty laundry, there's, no. there's a tension of bringing something like Connections into a big legacy sales-focused organisation like Lion. I mean, until only a few years ago, the marketing department at Lion was called the colouring in department. It was a very sales-led organisation. So that we're still learning as we go. Like mm-hmm. I touched on this earlier, but it, I think it's at Coke where the Connections model is five, six, seven years old. It's still called the new model. Yeah. So we're only a couple of years into this journey at Lion. So we are figuring it out. But I do think as we all look into the future and we do see the value of having creativity within corporations that are just facing you know, declining rates of profit and everything, they need the next wave, that hopefully things like connections can be mechanisms for changing cultures and allowing uh, different skill sets, different ways of thinking and, and more create creativity. It's such a weird word, creativity. Oh, you know no. what I mean? Yeah. But bring more creativity in. Yeah. yeah. Or just being more open yes. to seeing things differently. Yeah. Because yes. you know, yeah. it's interesting, you know, and, and, you know, without giving anything away, but, you know, now being in the office, in the physical mm. presence, what are the opportunities, you know, obviously you're interacting with market, you know, the marketing mm. team and they'd mm. be very open to it because they're marketers. But, you know, do you see opportunities of going further into the organisation, the sales teams, mm. the opera, you know, the product teams, the, mm. you know, and, and having an influence or at least bringing a perspective into yeah. some of the thinking there? I think um, since my time at Lion, I think quite fortunate that have been working with like really powerful advocates in the business who are not only advocating for your career but actually advocating for you to go and hang out with people you shouldn't normally hang out with so the last two years like I've spent lots of time out at breweries and you know you get to do sales ride-alongs and you you know get to see the day-to-day of everybody Uh, you meet supply chain people you meet procurement people you meet strategy and finance people like it has been quite Mm big on making sure that the silos aren't too siloed, mm. which is where, you know, a lot of Australian corporates can behave. Mm. Um, but they are being quite thoughtful in that respect. I think we've been pretty lucky, I think, that it yeah. is opening up a bit. I think the other thing that kind of helps is that I walk around that building all dressed in head-to-toe black and instantly everyone goes, oh, that's the design guy. So <laughs> you do get chats you wouldn't normally have. It's sort of helpful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the uniform. Yeah. It opens doors probably. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'd be interested to have a chat. Yeah. Now, that, the reason I had a big grin on my face while you were saying that because there's a book called A Technique for Producing Ideas by James Webb Young who was at J. Walter Thompson back mm-hmm. in the 40s. Okay. Part of the, one of the people that expanded. He wrote this technique and he said one of the important things is immersion, that the creative people in agencies mm-hmm. should absolutely immerse themselves totally. into the client's business. Now, in this, whether it's the fast pace, it's the cultural it's misalignment, it's the fact that in some organisations marketing is just seen as the colouring in department mm-hmm. and no one wants to let them in, mm-hmm. let alone the agency, yeah. you know, um, I'm being yeah, no, honest from yeah, this it's experience. Very true. It's very yeah, true. but you, you've just described exactly what he was saying back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Yeah. Was great creative ideas come from you know mm-hmm. getting in there? Um, what was it? David Ogilvie said, you know, one of the best headlines came from the uh, the ad about the sound of the clock in the Rolls Royce. Oh, yeah, 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 the classic yeah. one. Yeah, the yeah. classic ad. Yeah. yeah, all of these things come from actually getting in and talking to the people 
mm. on the, the factory floor. Yeah, I mean, I think that is true. I mean, it's the, the way the agency world has evolved, there is no time or money, right, to have one of your account planners. I mean, traditionally that was done by designers and account planners. Mm. No one can afford to have a planner go out and spend five days at a brewery now, Right. It's just not the way the agency, they need them on multiple accounts. I've been agency side too, right? We all know how it works. You're, you're officially retained well, at 300 Well, you build, you build on the hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but they, they, they're sitting in there going, hurry up, yeah. hurry up. And, now we would love, and we've tried to design some processes, particularly when we're doing advertising, like to get to allow, to say we need a week where the Thinkerbell creatives and planners get to go to Queensland and go and do this. We've tried to build that in wherever we can because that's how you get the best work. But the reality is on the day-to-day, we can't get that done all the time. And that is we're actually being in-house and knowing about how the supply chain works and what when when an agency comes back and goes, we can change the die cut on the label. Like, no, you can't. That's a two hundred fifty thousand dollar fit out in the factory. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Just those little things um, yeah. that I do think that we're having a couple of traditional creative people immersed does speed things up for sure. Yeah, uh, uh, look, I'll, I'll admit that uh, James Webb Young was working in the time where agencies were making twenty percent on all media, totally. so they probably weren't worried about the cost. Yeah. But it's a pity, isn't it? Oh, it's a because pity. because you. But in a way, you are creating that opportunity mm. in the roles that you have. Yes, I think case example that um, I spoke before about Tui. So one of the parts of the project and that refresh was about immersing all the agencies involved at the brewery, meeting yep. the brewers, going to understand, sitting there and listen to the noise um, in the canning lines yeah. and the bottling lines, and yeah, we understand took all. Of think about all of we've came. Yeah, yeah, keep yeah, going, yeah. keep going. But in that process, is like the weird creative who's looking off the head of design sits there and goes like, oh, there's all these streets and rails and things. Imagine if you brought a skateboard in here. <laughs> <laughs> so literally 12 months later we did a uh, partnership with a skateboard company called Passport, um, which turned into a really fun exercise that happened at the end of last year trying to just do something a little viral, a little social yeah, yeah. focused and saw also create a piece of merch that was designed just for our brewers to say, We've done this big rebrand. Here's something to celebrate you at the same time. How cool are you guys? We've got this great skateboard company to come and make you special work jackets just for you. Yeah. No one else is allowed to have them. You can't get a hold of them. It's only if you work for Tui's. But it just came about because you just sit, you did the tours. You spent the time. So one of the things I love about that story, apart from the outcome, is the fact that it reinforces that creative ideas come down to an individual mm. Mm being exposed to something that they're curious about and generating an idea, mm. you know, because one of the things that I think works against it, in, in especially in big corporate organisations, is groupthink. Oh, you know, yeah. this idea that we all have to get together and nut out the idea. Yes. And yet the best creative and the best strategic thinking can come from a multitude of conversations in a group session, but the idea almost invariably is an individual sitting there going, I wonder. Mm. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I hate brainstorms. When you get in, for this very reason, I was going, oh, there's going to be an hour and a half of post-it notes and markers and nothing really. I I think I've probably been, what, 26, 25, 26 years, I think I've probably been in two brainstorms in a quarter of a century where anything, a real fresh idea came out. And it was always from some individual. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Brief people, leave them alone, but, let them come back. And, yeah. and design especially, because we've all seen that cartoon about when a committee designs yeah. a swing for kids, you know, and it's something that never works, but at least it's safe. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. That's it. I am a little contrarian in that respect. Like I, I do sort of come, I enjoy stealing from the school of improv comedy, you know, like the school of yes and. and yeah. Having the group in a space that is willing to do yes and, things can get bigger and better and more exciting. But that takes a lot of effort to educate a group like that. And I think that's where studio culture and trying to infect that studio culture mentality into a business is really quite powerful. So, mm. um, yeah, to get success at line, but I have seen grassroots yeah. and uh, got little shoots, green shoots happening here and there. I think we have a really good group of people up in our ventures group who are kind of living and breathing a bit of that and seeing some really exciting things. That's actually a fair comment because you, your experience of workshop is where it's coming from a design background is where it's so work focused mm. as a planner. Most, a lot of my workshops have actually just been politics. <laughs> no, I mean, no, yeah, it's yeah. bringing a group of stakeholders along a journey. Yes. Yeah, so they all, at the end of it, they all think it's their idea and exactly. it all gets signed off. Yeah. Yes. But, yeah. but you're yeah. right. But still the starting point is someone saying, what about this? Yeah. And then everyone else goes, yes, and yeah. this and yes. this and this. But it takes trust. Mm. It takes openness, transparency, yeah. the you know the the need to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is why uh, writing teams, comedy teams, mm. uh, designers, working teams, you know, yes. working teams, mm. because you have that trust. Yeah, hundred mm. yes. percent. And and I think you know people talk a lot about building trust. Do you see that as part of your role as well? I imagine, you know, in some ways you're not just translating, Mm. you're actually building confidence and trust both with the agency, this is where the marketers are at and we need to work with that, but also taking what the agency says and giving it context so that people feel more confident. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think um, one of the beautiful things that I've benefited from is like having a design partner we've been so open to that mm-hmm. and so excited to have those moments with brand marketers as well as say just me like they don't just sit there and go oh we only trust Mick he'll look after us it's more like oh Mick has advocated for these guys let's get all in this together and do it together and great results have come from that like, mm-hmm. there's yeah. a genuine like collaboration collaboration, and also yeah. a lot of sort of porousness between both businesses. And I think there's really good teams in Think about that do that too. Like there's de- genuine moments of like this porous exchange mm. between both businesses when that trust has really quite developed. I think Tom's worked his bum off just trying to make sure both, both uh, brand groups and both um Officers of Thinkerbell feel the same way about that. And mm. yet we genuinely see benefit when that yeah. happens. It's been hard because we haven't been able to get down to Melbourne as much as we'd like to in the last little period of time. It does require that face-to-face, doesn't it? really it? does. Because the little face on the screen yeah. is not as yeah. engaging a, as, relationship as we're sitting in this room, you know, having this conversation. It would be very different online. Totally. And just to build on the trust thing, it's. I feel like Mick and I now have enough runs on the board. I think we, you know, trust has to be earned. You know what I mean? And I think we've got a couple of internal things where when we've been allowed to do our thing 
and not had a trillion stakeholders with oars in the bloody river, mm-hmm. um, the work has been better than when when we've had the others. You yeah. know, so I think I think we're earning trust both with our partners, but particularly internally, it's like, oh. Let connections do their thing and it does get better. Where we've got the internal resistance to like, no, I want to do it the way it was before connections exist. Was, exist. That's where we get the Well, because the there's, a, the there's a control oh, yeah. that comes with that. Yeah. And with control is security. Yeah. Because it can only ever be as good as I am. Yeah. And what's the alternative? I give up control, therefore someone else has Input yeah. and control, yeah. but I'm now vulnerable. Yeah, totally. Right? And which is where, you know, you talk about trust being uh, earned. I think if you create the right environment, though, trust can be given as a gift. Interesting. Right? Yeah, that's a mm. great way. Mm. Mm. I haven't yeah, thought about it's, that. It's a, here's the gift. Yeah. I'm trusting you. Yeah. Now, oh, yes. now I need you to deliver. not let me down and deliver on the gift that I've given you because, believe me, you break that because yeah. I always worry about trust being earned because it could take years. Some yeah. people just aren't very trusted. That's true. That's <laughs> very true. And in fairness to the people who hired us, like the Standings and the Anubas of the world, they very much said, we've hired you as experts. Here is the trust. They did gift us trust. Yeah. It was like, now go deliver. Yeah. And that's incredibly powerful Incredibly. when someone does that up front. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, fantastic and, and bosses. What, I'm, what I love about this conversation is that people always talk about, you know, what's the value I'm getting, mm-hmm. right? But when you create that environment, when you create the opportunities for people to be better than they thought they could be on their own mm-hmm. by working in that environment, no amount of money can actually necessarily create that. Like you pay mm. people for doing their job, mm. but then they can produce something that's even better. Mm. You know, I always think the procurement process of, well, what's the cost per hour? It's not about the cost per hour. It's about the value that all of those people actually create at the end of the day. And all I'm hearing here is that a lot of what you're doing is facilitating the delivery of that value that's almost inherent in the in the, the organisations that you're working with. Yeah, and I think when we're doing our best, we are creating what I think we're helping to create what you're describing, which is an environment in which all that magic can take place. Mm. You know, and I think when we've done our job, I'm repeating myself, when we've done our jobs the best, that's what's happening. On our, on sometimes it's not possible, but, you know, we do, we do our best. Look, um, that's probably a good place to finish because we've run out of time. Really appreciate you both uh, making time and and coming and having a chat. Um, Tom and Mick, uh, you know, great work and looking forward to seeing what you guys can do. Yeah, thank you. It's been great to chat with you. I have got a question and um, it actually came from my six-year-old son. Uh, I was drinking some uh, Castle Main 4X and he said, why is it called 4X? And I said, it's because Queenslanders can't spell beer. Is that true? 